Robert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not a drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The shooting, the violence, boy, that's been a part of labor history in America. This Labor Day, do you know where your various candidates stand on issues affecting American workers and what used to be the large American middle class after years of union bashing by people in positions of real power in Washington, are unions still relevant? Are anti-labor so-called right-to-work laws the wave of the future? Is there a middle class left at all? Will there ever be manufacturing jobs back in America again? Is the power of working-class Americans over the political power Or might there be a brighter future ahead? In the 21st century, the hard-won gains of organized labor over the past century plus are pretty much taken for granted. Unless you work in an old-school manufacturing job, you're probably not a member of a union, which brings us to the question of where America is on Labor Day 2016. Well, I'm pleased to have back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Professor Tom Cohen. Thank you for being with us, Tom. It's good to be here, Bert. Well, Tom Cohen has written an article titled, What American Workers Should Ask Candidates on Labor Day. He's also written a book on the topic called Shaping the Future of Work, What Future Worker, Business, Government, and Education Leaders Need to Do for all to prosper. Boy, that's, there's a lot to do there. Well, in the early to mid-20th century, it was not all that unusual for blood to be spilled in the streets as owners and management fought pitched battles between their hired thugs and often local police participated on one side, workers daring to form unions and better pay, better hours and working conditions on the other side. That heavy-handed approach proved to be kind of poor public relations for the businesses. And today, any anti-union strategies are much more subtle, and I suspect uh, still not uh, much more uh, soft, just more effective, perhaps. On Labor Day 2016, Professor Cochin, what is your sense of the national mood when it comes to organized labor? Well, today you have uh, a majority of people who endorse the right of workers to form a union and engage in collective bargaining. There's no question about that. That's still a strong majority in any poll that uh, is done. But that doesn't translate into action 
to make sure that we protect workers' rights to organize. And so that's the gap that we have to fill. Most people in the United States today, if you ask, well, can workers join a union if they want, they would say, well, sure, of course they can. That's That seems like uh, it's part of our law, isn't it? But the reality is that the law is broken, and uh, most people um, don't know that, and uh, so they don't get riled up about the need to fix labor law. We've got to rile up the public and get them to understand that uh, the promise of labor law, that workers could get a voice and get collective bargaining if that's what they want, um, no longer uh, is being delivered. And uh, until the public understands it, we aren't going to get much progress uh, in Washington. And the public voice still does matter. A lot of people, I think, have accepted the idea that, that we, the people, really don't have power. They see you know, all the money uh, being spent by the big corporations, the big banks. They, they, they kind of, uh, the impression is that they own Washington and that we should just pff, accept our powerlessness. Now, that is certainly against the history of the labor movement, as, especially in the 20th century, and we are hardly powerless, really. We really can't. I mean, they may have all the money, but they still, what is money for? It's to influence voters and to convince us that, that there's nothing we can do. And with the national elections just over two months away, man, it's going to be hot. What kind of an influence can average working class voters have on the candidates? You suggest that, quote, for starters, how about asking them if they prepared to restore your voice at work? Aren't most congressional candidates already beholden to the big money interest? Do average people still have any power, Professor Koken? Well, the good news is that uh, all of the frustrations that workers have voiced uh, in this campaign really are setting the agenda. Uh, we're seeing wage stagnation, concerns over income inequality get more attention this round than at any political campaign that I can remember. So I think we have a platform that uh, allows workers to really raise their voices and start to ask candidates exactly where they stand and what they're willing to do. So that's the good news. I think the next step is to basically say, all right, don't just give us empty rhetoric that, yes, right. it's Labor Day, so I'm all for unions right. and I support workers. Hold their feet to the fire. Let's ask them, what in concrete terms are you willing to do? How are we going to break this uh, political gridlock in Washington over labor policy? And and are you really willing to stand up for a labor and an economic policy that puts workers right in the center of uh, no. of uh, events so that they can uh, influence uh, their future? That's going to require a more creative approach to labor law reform and modernizing labor law than we've seen in the past. That's what we should be uh, asking uh, our candidates uh, uh, to do. And you use the word platform. I, uh, at the end of July, was in Philadelphia for the Democratic National Convention as a delegate, a proud delegate for the traditional Democrat, Bernie Sanders. And we, you know, Bernie talked about uh, the having the most progressive platform in many, many years. Now, as you say, you know that that's one thing, and, and you know most people I think are quite uh, logically skeptical of a platform being meaningful. The presidential candidate and eventual president, and I assume it will be Hillary, uh, can may or may not go with anything that's said in a platform. But what do we know about 
the Democratic Party platform, and for that matter, the Republican Party platform, when it comes to labor issues and rights to organize? Well, it's easy to to talk about the Republican platform because there's <laughs> nothing in it uh, for workers or uh, no labor rights that are endorsed. Uh, they're against the minimum wage. Um, they think uh, we ought to have a national right to work uh, uh, legislation. Uh, they think that uh, uh, unions in the public sector uh, should be abolished mm. and so on. So there's there's nothing uh, positive in the republican uh, platform at all the democratic platform is quite good but it doesn't go far enough and it and it it's a little too traditional it says yes we ought to fix labor law certainly we ought to increase the minimum wage we ought to invest in manufacturing and so on it says all the right things but uh, uh we've got to really push a little bit harder because that we we have to take uh, some new approaches and really encourage new forms of worker voice um, to uh, to uh, be able to be exercised in in workplaces today for people who are excluded from collective bargaining the contract workers the those in the so-called gig economy white collar and professional uh, managers who uh, are just as vulnerable to uh, their employers uh, holding down their wages and uh, scheduling uh, their hours of work at times that are uh, make it difficult for them to meet uh, workers meet their family and personal responsibilities. So we need to modernize our labor law, and that's what we should be asking uh, the candidates uh, to do, and uh, and make sure that that we hold them accountable once they're elected. Yes, indeed. If you just tuned in, we are Keeping Democracy Alive. Bert Cohen here, your host, and our guest on this, this discussion is uh, MIT professor Tom Koken, who has written an article, What American Workers Should Ask Candidates On, uh, Should Ask Candidates. And uh, uh, you talk about right to work. You know, that's such a nice title, right to work. Who could be against right to work? I know what it is. You know what it is. I'm guessing a lot of listeners may be sort of outside the, you know, worker management struggle and may not be familiar with the term itself, right to work. And these are special laws that, that have been put in and struggled over again and again and again. Uh, tell us a little bit about what this right to work stuff is all about. Yeah, the, right, the, the term right to work is a misnomer, as you just suggested. Yeah. But it is a, a feature of our labor law and the national labor law that says individual states can pass legislation that uh, prohibits um, uh, workers who don't want to join a union, even if a union is uh, representing them in their workplace, to join the union or to pay uh, union dues. And the normal way in which this happens is unions uh, get uh, organized and they uh, have to represent everyone in the bargaining unit, whether they are a union member or not. And so they will negotiate with the employer uh, a union shop clause or a clause that says uh, workers uh, who don't want to join have to pay uh, their fair share of the cost of being represented. Uh, But the right-to-work laws say that those clauses are illegal, and therefore uh, you have a bunch of uh, what... Uh, some people would call free riders. Yes. The union has to represent them, but they don't have to pay the dues. Yeah, that's kind of ugly. It's it's really, 
how many states, I know it's been tried here where the show is coming from in New Hampshire many times, hasn't passed yet. How many states do you know have right-to-work laws? And I assume, does this come from organizations like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange, Exchange Committee? It comes from them. It comes. There is something called a right-to-work committee. Oh, yeah. uh, it comes from uh, groups like the Koch brothers and others. Mm. Uh, and unfortunately, there's been growth in right-to-work uh, uh, laws, so we now have more than a majority. We're up to about uh, 29 states. Uh, I'm oh. sorry, 27 states that that have right-to-work uh, legislation, and there are bills in various states, including in New Hampshire, that uh, get debated every year. So uh, even uh, some uh, strongholds like uh, Wisconsin, of all states, and Michigan have passed right-to-work legislation uh, with their Republican governors and legislators uh, in the last couple of years. So it's been growing, um, uh, largely funded by uh, anti-labor causes. Oh, yeah. Now, what does this say about the power of unions? I mean, I'm frankly a little taken aback that Michigan, my goodness, you know, it's always been a strong union state. Uh, the fact that it seems like the, the trend, the tide is is toward more and more of these horrible so-called right-to-work laws. Uh, the unions, I assume, fight against these. And, God, it's got to be tough to, to fight these fights and to lose them. Uh, what's going on with the the power of unions at the state level when it comes to these laws? Well, you're right. Unions fight them very, very oh, sure. uh, vigorously. But uh, my view on this is it reflects the larger movement uh, toward more uh, conservative state legislatures uh, around the country. Hmm. And so you can't just fight uh, on the right to work issue, you've got to have a progressive uh, uh, agenda that uh, appeals to the public so that we don't elect these uh, uh, more conservative or right wing uh, yeah. uh, politicians. Because fighting it just on on that issue is uh, is is very That's treacherous. Right. Because yeah. it sounds like well, we're forcing people to join unions, and you can you can understand all of the the phrases and the rhetoric yeah, on sure. the other side of this issue that sound persuasive to people yeah. um, but uh, so that's that that's why we've got to see this as part of a larger um, uh, progressive agenda not uh, not just uh, isolated yeah and i wonder how many people that you know frankly don't belong to unions and maybe don't have friends in unions i think it may not be as easy to connect with them as it used to be when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s when, when unions were strong and the Democratic Party was rock-solid committed to labor unions. And I want to talk a bit about what's happened to the Democrats here. And, you know, there was the Democratic Leadership Council uh, that came in in the 1990s uh, with Bill Clinton, the so-called New Democrats. I get the impression that was a pretty radical change away from the Democratic Party traditional pace, the traditional base, which was working people, unions, and the party in Washington anyway, instead turning away from the traditional base and toward the source of easier big money, which, you know, the campaigns need a lot of money. And so, you know, wealthy, powerful, often corporate interests, the big banks, how, you know, that change 
uh, from the traditional base to the to the DLC, the so-called New Democrats, of which the Clintons are a strong part. How did that affect the political power of organized uh, labor? I, I get the sense that it, it hurt kind of bad. What's the reality here? Well, the reality is that as union membership declines, uh, these Democrats have looked around and said, well, wait a minute, yeah, we like uh, uh, union support, and really they don't believe that unions have anywhere else to go. Right. So they kind of take them for granted, yeah. but uh, as the base declines, uh, the ability of union leaders to influence uh, the actual priorities of elected Democrats has really declined. And as you say, it, it particularly now after Citizens United, mm. uh, you know, the case where, you know, more money has been poured into uh, the election process than ever before, uh, it's become even worse because the Democratic Party gets so much of its resources from uh, yeah. high technology, mm. from the financial sector, from uh, business groups that uh, are not uh, part of a worker constituency. Now, I think that's changing. I think the more uh, we see the kind of grassroots efforts of of unions renewed, and the more we can take these issues to the public through programs like this one and, and uh, all of the media around the country, the more that workers raise their voices in frustration about wages... Getting a progressive agenda message out there is what will bring the politicians around, uh, even if there's uh, um, not the money uh, that can be counterbalanced against uh, some of these other forces. Well, because there are the votes, if people can stick that's together. Right. I mean, that's what the money is for, to, to convince the people to uh, to get the votes. and. You know, eventually, well, I definitely want to get around to the focus of how labor laws can be fixed. A little bit of history. Anybody who listens regularly to Keeping Democracy Alive knows I love to talk about history. And for decades, the Republicans have targeted and sought to destroy any and all gains that were made by, to me, the one of the best uh, presidencies we've ever had, the Roosevelt administration and the New Deal. And again, some of the Democratic Leadership Council has, has joined in the attempt to fight back, to roll back all the labor laws and other laws that were passed in the New Deal, part of the progressive agenda, the traditional Democrats. Now, pretty much everyone, when they think about the New Deal, you know, you may think about jobs creation, public works jobs that were created, but less known is what the New Deal did for labor rights. I wonder if you could uh, tell us a bit about that aspect and how the growth of labor unions and collective bargaining rights meaningfully helped bring America out of that depression. Well, the cornerstone of the New Deal labor legislation was the passage of the National Labor Relations Act uh, in 1935. And that basically uh, did, for the first time, endorse collective bargaining uh, as the preferred way for workers and managers to engage with each other at the workplace. And it provided a, an election process where uh, a majority of workers uh, could uh, vote to be represented, and the idea was that it should be workers who decide whether uh, they want uh, a union or not. And then once they do, then there's a requirement uh, uh, to bargain in good faith uh, on wages, hours, and working conditions. And that law um, 
worked quite well for a while. The threat of of unions uh, uh, led to um, some firms voluntarily uh, agreeing to unionization, others only through uh, the pressure of uh, strong organizing campaigns and sometimes sit-down strikes. But the reality was, prior to the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, only about 10% of the workforce was organized. By the end of the 1940s, uh, we were up to about a third of the labor force organized. So it, it really did provide the protections that allowed workers to gain access to collective bargaining. And then through collective bargaining, essentially, uh, uh, the, the uh, wages and productivity and the cost of living moved forward together from the 1940s um, through the, the 1970s. That helped to bring us out of that depression. It helped us uh, fundamentally to win World War II because we had a, a set of wage formulas that, that made sense and that kept the labor peace and that drove productivity enormously uh, in, in, in support of the war effort. That continued after World War II. Uh, and there were famous agreements between General Motors and the auto workers in the late 1940s uh, that codified a, 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 a wage formula or a set of norms that said um, they will try to adjust wages periodically uh, to uh, uh, keep up with growth in productivity and growth in the cost of living. And so uh, we saw this tandem movement, um, whereas the economy grew so too did wages, and more people moved into the middle class. And that worked very well up until uh, about 1980 when uh, that uh, 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 broke down. Unions started to decline. Uh, there were deeper assaults on, on workers' uh, rights from the Reagan administration yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, from private sector employers. And we haven't recovered since. Yeah, and Reagan really started the ball rolling, I think, very effectively transforming a democracy into a plutocracy, having government of, by, and for the very rich only. And Reagan uh, really started doing that. And talk about, you know, getting out of the Depression. You know, there's economically, there's the old law of supply and demand. My sense has been that if, if more people have more money to spend, more disposable income— they buy more things, and that stimulates the economy. People buy more pizzas, for example. I mean, you know, they, they, they go out to eat more often, things like that. That's a way to stimulate the economy. Uh, I don't know if that understanding is still there. I mean, people now are concerned. I hear concerns about, what, you're going to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour? What about small businesses? Won't that hurt small businesses? How does that really help the economy? I, I sense concern about this idea of uh, $15 uh, minimum wage now. What's, your, uh, what's, the, what's the reality on that, Professor Koken? Well, I think there are some good reasons to be uh, cautious about that. Uh, but let, let's start with the basics. Seventy percent of our economy is driven by consumer purchasing power. So we, we have lost purchasing power for the people who spend the money because they have to spend all of their income just to uh, uh, put food on the table and uh, pay the rent and, and, uh, and meet their basic necessities. So increasing the federal minimum wage, which now is $7.25 an hour, yeah. uh, incrementally 
to get up to 15 makes a lot of sense. Now, can we do this all at once? Well, if we do it all at once, then we will have um, small businesses and some large businesses, for that matter, um, uh, in, in some difficulty, and we will lose some jobs as a result. But the evidence is very clear that if we increase it step by step over time, incrementally, uh, towards some target like uh, $15 an hour, um, we don't get the big employment losses, and firms can adjust by taking actions to, to train their workers more effectively so they're more productive by reducing turnover so they don't have the constant costs of always replacing workers, by uh, sometimes using better technology or just better management processes, or listening to the workforce about how to improve operations oh, really? and, and being able to afford the improvements. So if we do it step by step, uh, we can uh, we can increase the minimum wage and the economy benefits from the increased purchasing power mm-hmm. without big employment costs. Yeah, and one of the uh, the main points of the Bernie Sanders campaign was wage stagnation and the gap between productivity, which has increased a lot, and fair wage growth. You write that a main reason for this uh, huge gap is broken labor laws. Uh, Let's talk about that, what what you mean. In what ways are they broken? What does this mean? And and how must labor laws be fixed? So let's look at that uh, in some detail, if we would. Sure. They're broken in two respects. One, uh, they don't protect workers' rights to organize. And two, they're outdated. They need to be modernized. So let's start with the basics around uh, fixing um, uh, the basic features of labor law. Well, today the reality is if workers try to organize and their employer resists organizing, the employer wins about 90% of the time. So it's not workers who actually decide whether they're going to get a union. It's employers, depending on how strongly they, they choose to resist, and most do resist pretty vigorously. So we need to fix that. Uh, the the right to uh, freedom of association to a union is a basic human right recognized by international um, uh, human rights agencies like the International Labor Organization, which is uh, part of the United Nations. And so we've got to fix that. That's, that's a, a necessary condition. We can do that by strengthening the penalties against those who violate the labor law by either firing workers or failing to bargain in good faith and so on, um, and by ensuring that uh, uh, if unions do win a, uh, an election campaign, that uh, if there's stonewalling in the bargaining process, uh, there's some recourse to arbitration to get a first contract. Those things, I think, need to be done. But that's not enough. That's only the starting point. Then we've got to modernize labor law. So many of our doctrines don't make any sense. Workers today want to have a voice in a more cooperative way. They want to come to work and feel good about who they work for, and they want to contribute to making their uh, enterprise successful and to producing the goods and services and meeting the the needs of their customers, their clients, their students, their, uh, uh, their patients, and so on. And so we need to encourage labor management partnerships where unions and companies work together Mm. to engage workers in problem-solving and 
get their voice um, into the process so they can improve the organization and drive productivity and customer service. The third thing that we need to do is to recognize that the workforce and the way in which work is organized has changed dramatically mm-hmm. since the mm-hmm. National Labor Relations Act was passed. Today, more workers are excluded from coverage under the law than are included. So you have more people who are contract workers, uh, yeah. maybe working for uh, some other contract firm, but not for a regular employer, or independent contractors like in the gig economy, the Uber drivers and so on. Well, those people, every we ought to recognize a basic principle is everybody who works ought to have a, an ability to have a voice on their job. And so we should be opening up our labor law to these new forms of organizing, new forms of work, making sure that everybody is protected against uh, retaliation for trying to get a voice on their job, and let let these new uh, workers figure out what forms make sense for them. Maybe it's not traditional collective bargaining, but it's new ways of using social media mm. and networks and so on, and all of the technology and information about uh, where good jobs are and where bad jobs are. All of there's a lot of innovation going on out there along those lines, and we ought to protect workers and encourage workers to, to innovate in those ways so that they help us figure out what makes sense today. Wow, that's that's uh, pretty specific stuff and uh, sounds eminently doable and applicable to uh, 21st century. There's a lot of uh, you know old unions who have uh, you know been in the trenches in the past. Uh, some great unions, the the UAW, the IBEW, uh, uh, Communications Workers of America, all been you know really out front there. Are they on? They must realize that you know membership has taken a dive and that you know the public isn't necessarily uh, connecting with them. Are they on board with this stuff? Are, are they working together and and perhaps with you on this stuff to uh, to bring it up to uh, new standards and, and help uh, workers have a voice, basically. There's more openness among existing unions today to these kinds of broad-based reforms than ever before. Hmm. Unfortunately, in the Obama administration, the labor movement pushed a very narrow and traditional form of labor law reform called the Employee Free Choice Act. That that covered that first necessary piece that I mentioned about fixing the organizing process and imposing um, stronger penalties on violators of, of labor law. But it didn't uh, engage the public. It didn't really huh. go the next step of saying, let's open this up and, and provide forms of representation and voice that workers really want today uh, uh, in a more cooperative way or mm-hmm. uh, think about the changing... Uh, uh, nature of the workforce. I think today that's changed. You hear everyone from Richard Trumka, the president of the AFL-CIO, mm-hmm. to Mary Kay Henry, the president of the service employees, mm-hmm. to uh, Randy Weingarten, uh, the, the president of the uh, American Federation of Teachers, all recognizing that today we've got rec- we've, we've got to give workers a direct voice at work. They want to contribute to making both their organizations better and making the American economy work better. Hmm. And then uh, they can claim their fair share of uh, the gains that they help to produce. So I'm encouraged that the labor movement is is now open to new ideas. Uh, they're not open to uh, crazy ideas that 
would uh, would weaken the ability to get collective bargaining, but ones that complement collective bargaining in ways that uh, 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 make sense today. So I think uh, we have an opportunity to uh, to really form a broad-based coalition around uh, this uh, set of ideas if we get the right mix of uh, person in the White House uh-huh. and uh, people in Congress. And that right person in the White House is obviously not the Republican nominee whose name shall be left unsaid. Just incredible. What about Hillary Clinton? You know, she's been... I think it's fair to say she's uh, not your traditional Democrat, not, you know, from the uh, maybe on some issues, I suppose she's she's liberal. But what what about her uh, take on this stuff? You don't hear her talking about this uh, labor uh, relations issue uh, very much. What do you know about uh, our nominee's position on these things? Well, I think uh, Hillary Clinton understands the need for fundamental new policies to get wages moving. Uh, And that includes uh, support for unions and collective bargaining. Uh, One thing about Hillary Clinton is she's very analytical and very Uh uh, open to um, evidence about uh, what will work. And she also uh, understands the difficulties of traditional labor law reform. Uh, she saw that during uh, Bill Clinton's presidency, that the, that effort went nowhere. She saw it, I'm sure, again, watching it uh, in the Obama administration when she was um, a senator uh, uh, in the first phase of, um, mm-hmm. of uh, that experience and then, then became Secretary of, of State, obviously. So she's seen it, and I think she will be open to creative ideas that truly protect worker rights, but uh, also work for what she calls, uh, appropriately, the high-road uh, economy. She has a, 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 a an economic strategy that she wants to promote good employers who compete on the basis of productivity and then share the, the gains through profit sharing or, or other oh. means. Hmm. So this is, this is all consistent with that kind of strategy. Uh, but we have to hold uh, uh, our elected leaders' feet to the fire to put this yes. at a at the center of their economic strategy, not, uh, ah, not as at the a periphery. Ah, interesting point. It should not be at the periphery. This is the American economy we're talking about here. And we're talking about uh, Labor Day 2016. Our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive today is Tom Cochin, who has written an article on what America should ask candidates on Labor Day. And he's written... Very interesting book on the topic called Shaping the Future of Work, What Future Worker, Business, Government, and Education Leaders Need to Do for All to Prosper. And I like the idea of the cooperative, the less uh, uh, confrontational. You know, we had all that confrontation, which accomplished a lot in the 30s and 40s in particular, but I've long thought that you know, the more uh, workers on the old assembly lines, the more that they have a stake and a say and what gets produced and how it gets produced, the better it is for everybody. And you hear, you know, a lot of advertising these days by uh, a lot of corporations, big international corporations, trying to promote the image of being good corporate citizens. This is really important, I think, and, and, and you've talked about this. How 
is is it window dressing? How much are they doing this? Are they doing this because they recognize that this is real, this is really good for the economy, or is it just sort of image building? Or I'm, I'm guessing some of both. What, what do you know? It, it, it's clearly some of both, but there are many employers who recognize that uh, employees are really important uh, uh-huh. uh, assets and need to... Uh, be well trained, and uh, we need to have flexible work systems and Im- input from employees to drive innovation, productivity, and, and particularly to drive good customer service. So we need to really work with those employers. We need to split the business community in a way that we have not been successful in doing in the past, and that is put. Uh, put the issue to these good employers and say, all right, if that's what you stand for, we're prepared to work with you and we're prepared to do this and we'll do it with some credibility, but then you've got to support uh, the fundamental labor law reform and updating so that you don't have to compete with these uh, low-road employers who don't share that view or who only use it as window dressing. So I think that's the message to take to the business community, that's the message the public will relate to. You know, up here in in our part of the world, uh, two years ago, we had this uh, remarkable experience with Market Basket. And here's a non-union firm, but where the workers and customers came together to say, hey, this is a good employer. Historically, they've provided jobs for kids they provided good career jobs for uh, people uh, who who stay with them because they like uh, working at Market Basket and they're treated fairly and they share in the profits. And all of a sudden, uh, the board of directors, the power shifts, and uh, all that's going to be taken away. And you saw this revolt, and you saw the communities and the public and the employees all come together and say, hey, there's something wrong with that. We think this is a good way to do business, and we don't want to see it go away, and we're going to stand up and support it. Well, that you know was pretty unique uh, in, in some ways, but I think it sends a message to all of us. If we can send a simple, clear, and positive narrative like that to the American public, there will be support for workers. There will be support for sensible forms of of collective bargaining and unions and worker rights, and I think there'll be a coalition that uh, uh, would support labor law reform. I have to say, that was an amazing, beautiful moment in labor history to see, and I'm sure, you know, the uh, the more greedy parts of uh, Market Basket uh, that lost the battle must have been really surprised by the community support. It was tremendous community support. I mean, just living in an area where there's a couple of market baskets, the the community support was fantastic. And, you know, people got the sense that this is a good company. Uh, Arthur T. Demolis had been, you know, treating workers well, and that mattered to people. It was a, it was a beautiful moment in uh, in worker history, and uh, there is a film about it, which I haven't seen yet, but uh, it, it just, to me, it indicates, and it must have indicated to, to some of the anti-union people that, uh, ooh, we got to be careful here. The public sometimes can actually care about workers' rights and, and, and can uh, line up and, and unite with workers as a community. It was, it was pretty darn uh, encouraging, and it's you know, very uh, optimistic. You talk about 
Hillary Clinton, you know, in trying to uh, help the economy here, taking the high road. Let's take a look at, at, at some of what I certainly see as, as the low road, and that's the old race to the bottom. Trade deals like the North America Free Trade Agreement and others, my impression is, I, I, you have much more knowledge of this than I do, but that NAFTA and other trade deals have resulted in the flight of manufacturing jobs to low-paying uh, places, you know, the race to the bottom where companies go where wages are low and there are few, if any, working condition and environmental standards. Is it realistic? I mean, all right, let, let's first talk about the reality of, of these trade deals, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Hillary Clinton did support rather strongly. How, how badly have these trade deals uh, affected uh, uh, working conditions and, and what used to be the middle class in the United States? Well, international uh, trade and the, and the rise of uh, the low-wage countries like China clearly has cost a lot of good jobs in manufacturing in the United States. It's not just the trade deals. That's uh, in, in some ways we're 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 fighting the wrong battle. Huh. Yes, uh, NAFTA was was a bad deal, and and NAFTA has cost us uh, some jobs in the United States to Mexico. And that there, there probably could be some changes. Although I think the, you know, it's a little too late to to renegotiate NAFTA, and so that's kind of an empty rhetoric uh, uh-huh. to rail against the trade deals. We don't have a trade deal with China. Uh, China isn't part of the the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Agreement, and yet that's where the biggest loss of jobs. Um, uh, uh, that's where we've lost the most jobs. And so we're not going to bring a lot of low-wage jobs back to the United States. Any candidate who believes that uh, or tries to make people believe that uh, is 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 just uh, you know not credible. Yeah. What we can do is negotiate fair trade deals. Uh, I don't think the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Agreement has enough strong labor protection. It's a step in the right direction. It's better than the others that we've negotiated in many respects. But we basically first have to have a fair employment policy in the United States so workers can move to where the good jobs are and workers can improve their their bargaining power. And Workers have the training to get the next generation of manufacturing and good high technology jobs. If we put all of that in place, what we've been talking about so mm-hmm. far here, then I think you will begin to see more support for fair trade deals. And the fair trade deals would then put strong worker protection and enforcement of worker rights, um, uh, both global worker rights for people in developing countries that we, we compete with, and, and try to move up their standards uh, as we move up ours. One of my colleagues here, uh, my good friend, uh, Professor Michael Piori, who studies uh, these issues more directly than I do and is an expert on on Mexico and, and Latin America, says what we should do is raise our, our minimum wages in tandem, uh, encourage Mexico or, or get Mexico to raise their minimum wage and raise ours at the same time. That's, a, that's the kind of creative thinking that would... Uh, help us to have a, a labor policy that would make sense for our economy and at the same time uh, perhaps uh, build broader support for a good trade policy. 
but I think uh, the, the the real area to focus on, in addition to trade, is to to invest in the next generation of good job opportunities. And there are two mm-hmm. areas in particular. One is manufacturing, not not to bring the the, the jobs we lost back as much as. Think about the the next generation, and the Obama administration is starting to do this, but it needs to be expanded and 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 worker rights and worker voice in those new manufacturing uh, institutes that have been created need to be strengthened. But the second area, and probably even more important, is infrastructure. Yes. You hear all these uh, politicians on the uh, Republican and Democrats say, "Oh, I'm going to invest in infrastructure." Well all right, hold their feet to the fire. Let's put real investment into repairing our bridges and our water systems and our electrical grid yes. and our uh, broadband systems so that they catch up with our competitors uh, around the world. But let's make sure that we put real labor standards into that infrastructure investment. And the way we can do that is by saying, all right, let's have labor and, 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 and business put some of their skin in the game and then let's make sure that they, in, in fact, work in partnership mm. and that they, uh, they uh, pay a, a fair wage uh, and that they can bring these uh, projects in uh, safely, on time, with well-trained workers, and on budget. Mm. That's, I think, where we could go uh, to generate lots of good jobs yes. and do the economy a great service in making sure that we're we're creating the infrastructure that allows us to be competitive for the long run. There's there's growing consensus about this, but we've got to make sure that we actually follow through. Boy, really, and it's going to cost a lot of money, and people are concerned about that. I mean, to me, one of the many, many great things about the New Deal was the hundreds of thousands of public works jobs it created, and it it built what I would consider to be real national security, you know, cre- creating uh, electricity, bringing it down to, uh, you know, the rural electrification projects, things like that, the, uh, the Hoover Dam, many, many things. There's a lot of work to be done, a tremendous amount of work to be done, and many, many, many people who need work. I mean, it just seems Absolutely. so obvious. You put them together, you know, this crumbling infrastructure in so many ways. Now, Obama did a little bit of this with his stimulus back in, I believe, it was 2009. Is it realistic to ask our candidates to make it happen, to make a much bigger uh, uh, expenditure. And a lot of people say, oh, my goodness, this will increase the deficit. But my sense is, you know, economists realize, no, this is an investment. This is a good investment. And any, any successful business knows you have to invest prudently to prosper for the future. So let's talk, where would the money come from from this? How, I mean, we're talking serious dollars here, many billions of dollars, I believe. Where would the money come from? Absolutely, and there's two answers to that. Uh, one is there's never been a better time uh, to make investments than now because interest rates are so low, oh, so historically, low. at, at so low levels. And so uh, investing for the long run now uh, at current interest rates is... Uh, is a good economic strategy and those people who rail about the deficits and so on yes we have a deficit and we have to manage that but the way we manage that is by getting this economy growing and getting the purchasing power up and making sure we're competitive for the long run and the deficit will take care of itself 
The second place that we can look is through public-private partnerships. Yeah. You know, the labor movement itself said, well, we'll put up some money from our pension funds to support infrastructure. Well, let's hold our feet to the fire on that and let them then say, okay, if we're willing to do it, let's go to Wall Street and, and get them to put up some money. And that way we've got, uh, you know, a, a, a stake in this process and we can all say, all right, let's now not only put our money there, but now we have a right because it is our money to make sure that we we do this in a way that uh, respects workers, that gets the high productivity, that gets safe work practices, that pays a decent wage, that really makes these investments work for the economy and for the workforce. So, yes, public investment, but I think some private investment, and then creative ways to work together, as we did in the past. You know that. Look, the the way we got out of the depression. Yes, there were public work investments, right. but it was really the the war expenditures yes. to build up uh, for World War II and to 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 uh, get all of the war material that we needed uh, in place. And we did that with uh, labor and management sitting on something called the War Labor Board with the government that at that time said, "Let's make sure we don't have strikes um, and that we we do this in a way that." puts in a, a rational wage structure and all of these practices that we now take for granted. Well, we did it then. Let's not wait for or depend on a war. Mm-hmm. Let's use it in a positive way on things that everybody knows we need. Uh, interesting. And, and people say, well, the New Deal didn't really work. It was the Second World War that actually got us out of the Depression. That's true, but the, the way it worked, my understanding is that World War II was basically in this sense, a public works program. <laughs> yes, it, exactly right. So we, let, let, let's not go to war. Let's, no. Uh, no, no, let's, no. Let's do it uh, in, <laughs> in ways that, um, that, that get the same effects uh, in a very positive way. And one thing I wanted to ask uh, Professor Cochin is, uh, you know, it used to be the norm, and we talked about mobility, for generations to work at the same job. You know, my father did it, his father did it, I'm doing it too. There was real security and staying in one job in one town from generation to generation. Now we think of the example of Detroit, the, the, the auto manufacturing. They're basically gone. People are far more mobile. So there must be some challenges and opportunities with, with this uh, uh, demographic change. Absolutely. And, and you know, we, we designed a health care system and a retirement system based on uh, long-term uh, employment with a single employer in the 1940s. And those days uh, seem to be over for many workers, not for everyone, but for, for many workers. So today we have to have portable benefits, everything from uh, unemployment insurance moving across, uh, pensions, uh, the health insurance, sick leave, family paid leave as workers uh, have to balance their work and family responsibilities. Uh, savings, uh, whether it's 401ks and so on, but things that really move with the employee as uh, she or he moves across employers. And if they're splicing together various part-time jobs or independent contracting jobs, then uh, there should be a proportionate amount of contribution for the hours worked, but those funds should move Uh with the employee throughout their career so that they can draw on them as needed. That 
is a big task ahead of us. It's doable, and people we've been talking about this for a couple of decades, yeah. but now I think some of the people in Congress uh, and some of the more thoughtful senators are beginning to recognize that the time has come to do this. And even some employers recognize this because they see um, uh, the fact that uh, uh, they're not going to have employees as long as they did in the past, and yeah. therefore a different model is needed. So, so again, I think that won't be easy. That won't be done overnight, but it's time to get started on uh, that agenda as well. Yeah, we can do it. And I wonder, you know, we're talking about Labor Day 2016 and the big election coming up. Uh, Professor Koken, are people, are, are members of Congress getting this, do you think? Or, you know, they, I, my, my sense is oftentimes they just, you know, say nice words, but they, they might not really get it or really care about that. What's your sense of, of what the trend might be? I mean, you're talking about a lot of optimistic, really positive stuff. Are they getting it? I don't think they're getting it yet, and I think right. that's why we've <laughs> got to make sure that we raise these issues and we hold them accountable, and that's why I, I wrote that piece for Labor Day and why uh, I'm so delighted to talk with you and, and others about this to get get the public, get the workforce itself uh, asking politicians, what are you going to do? Hold them accountable. Yeah. Make sure that, 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 you, uh, that we follow up the the with uh, uh, these ideas because you know as as you just said on Labor Day every politician yeah. that's got any sense at all is going to say <laughs> well I'm for the workers I'm for unions I'm for collective bargaining uh, but it but it's meaningless unless uh, uh, we hold them accountable to go a little bit deeper and and really uh, support these kinds of uh, forward looking policies so. I think workers have an opportunity this Labor Day to uh, press the pol- political uh, yeah. leaders that come in front of them and say, all right, we've got an agenda, let's make sure uh, you're on board, and we're going to make a judgment, not only this time, mm-hmm. but we're going to hold you accountable at the next uh, election if uh, yeah, really. you don't uh, follow through. Yeah, they got to do that. i got a couple more before we uh, reach the end. You know, a hundred years or so ago, the idea of a 40-hour work week was, was just a dream. It was unthinkable. But now we have it. And my sense is in some European countries, there's recognition that leisure time and family time is actually economically smart. It's valuable to the productivity of their national economy. Wouldn't more jobs create be created by simply reducing work weeks even further? What about the prospects uh, on this aspect? Well, I think the issue of work hours is probably the one thing that cuts across the largest uh, segment of the workforce today. White-collar workers, professional workers, high-technology workers, people who uh, uh, you know are on their smartphones or whatever piece of equipment you want uh, 24-7. Yeah. They all share, as well as the people on the service, in the service sector opening and Closing our restaurants and uh, cleaning our yeah. our rooms and our hotels all share a concern around work hours. Now, I am not uh, a fan of forcing uh, down the hours of work below forty uh, in, in 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 some way. What instead I am uh, a great believer in is giving workers the right to negotiate yeah. and to ask for um, uh, flex 
flexibility in their work schedule so that if uh, I have a sick parent or a child or I have a a responsibility to uh, try to uh, match my spouse's work schedule uh, to be at home or to participate in in family and social activities, then I should have a right to request and the firm, the employer should have a responsibility to uh, do due diligence to try to accommodate one's hours. Control over hours is more important than the number of hours people work uh-huh. for in, in, in many ways today. Sure. And when you have control over hours, often commitment to work and, fle- yes. and, and productivity goes up. And I think that would take care of, uh, of the hours question. Yes, over time, I would like to see average hours work per week come down some. But I think we have to do that in a, in a way that, again, reflects today's service economy. We are in a 24-7 uh, world. Yes. So, so employers have a legitimate need to uh, staff their businesses as, uh, as needed, yeah. but workers then of all sorts have an equivalent uh, uh, right and need to figure out how to, to schedule their work in yes. ways that meet their complex uh, work and family responsibilities. One, one last thing. My dad used to talk about apprenticeships, how important they used to oh, be. You yes. don't hear much about them. Uh, what's your thought about that and how useful they oh. might be? Well, this and this, by the way, is one of the areas where Hillary Clinton has been very, very um, strong uh, in supporting uh, the need to rebuild apprenticeships. You're right. Apprenticeships have the best rate of return in terms of income and productivity of any training program um, that we have in the country. The evidence is very clear on that. Yet we've we've had a decline in the number of apprenticeships uh, uh, in industry, uh, again, as unions have declined. We need to rebuild them. We need to do it in modern ways. We don't just need to rebuild the plumbers and the carpenters. We need to do that, and the welders in, in, in particular. But we also need industrial apprenticeship, where workers have a variety of skills to maintain all of this high technology and fancy equipment and and can move with the technology as it comes along. So mm-hmm. I am a strong believer in the need to expand apprenticeship training in the United States, and that's where unions have historically paid, played a, a, a very key role and can, uh, uh, can build on that uh, experience and that knowledge and the quality of those apprenticeship graduates that unions have, have helped to create. So I think that's a very proud... Um, uh, uh, feature of the labor movement of labor management relations. We need to build on it. Well, we talked about uh, power. We do have power. You got some great ideas. Is there any way people can, you know, get in touch with uh, with, with what you're talking about here if they want to move it forward and, and listen to this and take some action on it? Well, I think they they can uh, see what's in 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 the book on shaping the future of work. Uh, they can go to a, uh, our website. Uh, speakupforwork.com. You'll find a lot of uh, this material. I teach an online course uh, in this, every spring on these issues that lay out uh, how to move forward. And so they can, and, and that material is all available uh, online and people can look at it uh, and work with it. And fundamentally, they should just begin to talk with each other and talk uh, with uh, their political representatives 
representatives about this. And so I think uh, the more we can make this public, uh, the more we can do uh, radio programs like this, and you can use um, uh, all of the the power of modern media to get yep. the word out, the better. We can do it. Thank you so much. Very informative and very optimistic. Professor Tom Kogan, thank you so much for being with us and helping us all to keep democracy alive. Thank you. Happy Labor Day. <laughs>